Weren't those kids awesome? They were incredible. But now you're stuck listening to me because you can't. Well, you guess you could get out if you wanted to. I am so glad you're here today, uh, whether you're in the house or whether you're joining us online today, because I, I have some great news for you today. And it should be good news, uh, even if you're a student, because you probably have plenty of uh, finals that you've been uh, preparing for. And if you aren't a student, you probably wouldn't want to have to take a test anyway. And so the good news is uh, today, as we wrap up our semester long study of Romans chapter 12, there's going to be no final exam. Can I get an amen? That'd probably be a few people happy about that. The only test will be to see if you choose to live out your faith on a daily uh, basis with these very practical ways that we've been learning about in the study that we have tagged, the University of Practical Faith. And I hope you've been some time, spent some time reading through the book of Romans these uh, past uh, three months. And I hope you continue to spend time in your Bible every day. Studies have shown that you need to spend at least uh, four times a week, four days a week in God's Word in order for it to have any real transformative uh, influence over your life. So just keep that up. And uh, that's because what goes on in your thoughts affects every other area of your life. Because we actually don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are through all sorts of different filters. And so those who believe in God hopefully want to view the world through the lens of faith so that it's God's perspective that is really forming our beliefs. And so we've been studying this last semester, trying to learn what God wants us to learn, because what you learn, of course, influences how you think. Uh, The knowledge that you have accumulated over the years is often what determines your thinking. And then, of course, how you think is what influences what you believe. And your beliefs are formed by the things that your mind accepts as true. And then what you believe, of course, influences how you live. Almost all of your actions or reactions are really a direct reflection of all of your beliefs. Now, all that to say, I think that's why early on in Romans chapter 12, we find these words in verse 2. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Think like the world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what we've been trying to do these last few months. And today, we arrive at the final lesson, lesson 12, in our University of Practical Faith. And I think a case could easily be made that this, this final verse in Romans chapter 12 actually kind of summarizes everything else that Paul's been trying to instill into our minds in this, really, this application-packed portion of Scripture in this letter that he wrote uh, to Christ's followers in Rome first, but now subsequently to us. And so are you ready to wrap it up with verse 21 of Romans chapter 12? Uh, I'd like to ask If we could just all read that together aloud, if we could. Are you ready? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the fact that it's even stated that way can only mean that it's clearly within the realm of possibility to be overcome by evil. But also it should be clear that by responding to evil with good, it's possible to even overcome evil. Now, having clarified that, I would want to say that this honestly has to be maybe one of the most challenging verses in the Word of God to follow. 
but it's also one of the most important and life-transforming. And so let's go ahead and dig in. And what makes following this verse so challenging is that our natural tendency is to return in kind, to return in kind. Has everybody here heard uh, of the golden rule? I hope you have by now heard of the golden rule. And what is so golden about the golden rule uh, is that it says we should treat others the way we would like to be treated. And it's golden because that's actually about the opposite of what we naturally would tend to do, uh, which we naturally tend to do unto others as they have done unto us. It's almost an automatic response. You don't have to really even give it any thought. Uh, And it's described in many different ways, like eye for eye, tit for tat, quid pro quo, to name a few. And it usually shows up at specific times in our life. For example, it'll show up when, when someone disrespects us, like when they're rude or they're impolite or they're offensive. And it actually may have nothing to do with the words that they have spoken. In fact, it might not have anything to do uh, with the word they've said, but it can be caused by raised eyebrows, by that loud sigh, maybe those rolling eyes or an offensive gesture, and it's a, it's a kind of disrespect. Or it may come when they actually do use their words to put us down with a little bit of sarcasm or some critical comments uh, to make you feel inadequate. Or it may be how they actually indirectly interact with you by employing some selective uh, inattention, which shows up when all of a sudden they're ghosting you and not responding anymore uh, to your requests or your emails. And you know, the initial response is when somebody does that, it's like, wow, I'd like to give them a little medicine of their own, their own medicine. Or it can happen when someone takes advantage of us. Uh, Like when you're in a a relationship that's all about give and take, which turns out to be that you give and they all take. That's what they do. Or maybe when somebody mistreats us. How do you feel when you get mistreated? It's surprising to me that even though it it was almost 50 years ago, I, I can still remember being mistreated, and I can still remember the culprit's name. His name was Gerald Goodsell, and he and his family were kind of backyard uh, neighbors to us, and they were really kind of a rough and tumble bunch, uh, way out of my league because they had a home full of only boys, and I was the only boy in a house full of three sisters, so go along with that. Well, I remember walking home one day from school carrying my peachy notebook, And I thought today I'd give some of you a blast from the past. You remember that peachy notebook? That would be on the list of school things we had to get at the beginning of school. And I was walking along from home from the school carrying those notebooks along my side there. And Gerald Goodsell, I don't know what got into him. Actually, he was doing what a lot of people were doing back at that time. He walked behind me and he slapped those notebooks out of my hands. And uh, I don't know what happened. Maybe caught me at a bad moment, but it's all kind of a blur. And you know what I remember doing? Actually, nothing. I think I just jumped at him in some way. But the next thing that I knew, he was sitting on top of me, pummeling my face with his fist. That's just kind of how it goes. But I think at least part of the reason that we are so quick to want to respond to a perceived injustice is because truly, I mean, truly apathy Uh, is what enables evil. And you heard me mention a while back, someone quoted, uh, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is for good people to simply do nothing. 
So apathy enables evil, but the problem with returning evil for evil is that evil only propagates evil. I mean, responding to evil in kind is kind of like pouring gas on a fire. And yet, isn't it true, the temptation when we face some kind of evil or injustice is to try to fight fire with fire. And all of us here are going to encounter evil in this life. And the temptation is always going to be to respond to evil and injustice by punching back or by sinking to its level. And the dilemma is that the cycle of revenge is actually never satisfied. It can just keep going and going. The only things that really the cycle of uh, revenge produces is more hurt and more pain. Evil is never overcome by evil. So, so really, don't let that determine your response. I think Martin Luther King, I think he sums it up so well. He says, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding an even deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And what Paul is trying to say here is that Christians should not respond in the same way that the world does. Now, what's hard is when someone wrongs us and we experience that sense of injustice inside. And it just feels right that they ought to hurt like we ought to hurt. Or they need to pay for what they have actually done. And honestly, we might, we might be a little bit justified in feeling that way. Uh, that, that might be what they deserve. But when we repay evil with evil, we don't end up solving anything. Instead, what we do is we become stuck in this, really, this, this brokenness of sin. The only thing that puts the brakes on evil is good. Now, you know, the Apostle John wrote three letters that are included in the New Testament for us, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And 3rd John, I don't ever get to mention 3rd John in a sermon because it's only one chapter. And, uh, but in 3rd John 11, he actually has something very important to say for us here. He says, dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. There is only one way that evil can overcome a Christ follower. And that's if we return evil for evil. If someone insults you and kind of snarls at you, you're not overcome at that point. You're only overcome when you decide to snarl back. If someone hates you and you hate him back, evil is getting the victory. If someone attacks you and you seek revenge, you've become like the evil one. And that's because you've actually let this other person become your role model. Anytime you mimic evil, evil is overcoming you. So how, how is it that we can respond differently? Well, repaying evil uh, with good, it sounds like a great concept, but it's a challenge to practice because it requires mercy. See, if you're going to If you're going to respond to evil with good, you're going to need mercy in order to do that. And so where are we going to get the mercy that we need in order to accomplish that? It can only come from God. And it's probably why Romans 12 starts with that very thought. Remember Romans 12.1? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's 
Mercy, the way you're living out your Christian faith is in view of God's mercy so that you can offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so while responding to evil with evil, it really is simply doing what comes naturally, extending mercy. Remember, it's a supernatural response. That's why it requires a little bit of outside help. And so we've already established that retaliation, that's the natural response. Being merciful to others when they don't deserve it, well, that's what Christ demonstrated for us so that then we can offer that response in return to others. And the apostle Peter was very, very clear about that in 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice what he wrote. He says, and to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should actually follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. See, when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he didn't make any threats. Instead, he entrusted, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And see, there's important definitions or understanding of grace and mercy. You know, grace is actually getting what you don't deserve. And we get the grace from God. The grace of God is the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. But we also need mercy from him because mercy is not getting what you deserve. And there's people who joke about it all the time because we recognize, man, if I got what I deserved and they'll say, hey, you know, I'm afraid to do something because lightning is going to strike. Or I've had people that have had concern over the roof caving in if they came to church because it was falling in, they they deserve something. Folks, we all recognize if any of us got what we truly deserve, we would all be toast because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Fortunately, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And overcoming evil with good begins when we learn to extend to others the mercy that we have been shown by God himself. Now, when I say that, I I do want to offer today a word of caution. And the word of caution is this. Make sure you don't confuse your responsibility as a Christ follower to others with the responsibility of the government, because sometimes we get that mixed up. And you know, Jesus made a statement in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and the statement that he made was, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And Jesus was actually quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, an Old Testament guideline for the Jewish nation. But see, what the Jews had done is that they had taken this instruction given in the book of Deuteronomy, which was meant to be carried out, by the people that were in charge of the community, the government leaders, the judges. And uh, they were using it in a way uh, to, to get back on their own. But it was actually intended to be a way to make people responsible for their actions and also to limit what kind of retribution was actually acceptable. And uh, so they had turned it into a license for their own personal uh, retribution rather than uh, letting be handled by the court. And the Apostle Paul actually brings this up in Romans chapter 13. Notice what he says. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good, 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword uh, for no reason. They are God's servant, agents of what? Wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So I just want to remind you today, it's okay for the government to pronounce judgment on someone and inflict punishment on them in order to help deter anarchy and lawlessness from breaking out. That's why we need the government. But in our personal reactions, we're going to do something different. And so in order to understand on a maybe a more practical level what responding with the appropriate amount of mercy looks like, I think we ought to begin with what I would call Jesus' practicum on overcoming evil with good. And it's found in Matthew chapter 25, and it actually begins, or chapter 5, and it actually begins with the verse that I just shared earlier, but it goes farther. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But then he says, you know what But I say? Don't resist an evil person. Don't respond with evil for an evil person. And then Jesus vividly goes on to describe what that looks like exactly. And the first instruction we're given, does anybody know what it is? It's to turn the other cheek. And he says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Now, I think sometimes we get confused about what Jesus is getting at here. I don't believe Jesus is promoting not trying to protect yourself from physical harm by turning the other cheek. You see, when you think about it, the right cheek is noteworthy because when a right-handed person, and most people are right-handed, I know that because I'm left-handed, and there's a lot more right-handed people, but when a right-handed person strikes another person in the face, it's most certainly going to make contact with the left side of their face unless they choose to strike that person with the back of their right hand. That's what comes into contact with the right cheek. And so to strike someone's right cheek requires a backhand slap, which is more like an insult to one's personal dignity. And so turning the other cheek doesn't really imply pacifism, nor does it mean that we should place ourselves or others in danger Jesus' command to turn the other cheek is a command to forego retaliation for personal offenses to us. I mean, even in our day today, a slap in the face, that's a metaphor for an unexpected insult or offense. And so Jesus is saying, did someone insult you? Let him. Jesus says, are you shocked and offended? Don't be. Don't return insult for insult but turn the other cheek. Now, he could have stopped there, but he went on. And he says that we need to give above and beyond. He literally said, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, literally the shirt off your back, you know what he said to do? Go ahead and give them your coat as well. He says, whenever and whatever evil is forcing you to give, give above and beyond. And he could have stopped there, but he didn't stop there. He said we're supposed to Go the extra mile. He said, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And what you and I might miss is how these words of Jesus would have been profoundly disturbing to his first century audience. See, the second mile that Jesus was referring to was not just this nice platitude that he kind of made up on the spot. It would have struck a very real and painful nerve in the Jewish community. You see, soldiers in the Roman army, uh, who in certain aspects actually could be considered the Nazis of their day, 
They have the legal right to force any person in an occupied territory to carry their very heavy army pack for them. However, it was limited to a thousand paces. That was one Roman mile, about a half a mile uh, of a mile today. And you got to remember, the second mile is only made possible after being subjected to the first mile. And it's the second mile is how we overcome evil with good. I mean, think about it for a moment. Imagine a first century Jew is kind of minding his business, working his trade. A Roman soldier comes by and calls to him and demands that he carry his backpack for one mile down the road. And uh, that command actually interrupts their whole day. Uh, It takes them away from their work, but they have no choice concerning that very first mile. However, this individual is a second miler. And when they approach the one-mile marker, instead of throwing down the pack in disgust and spitting on the ground and marching back home, they actually volunteer to go the extra mile with the soldier, which all of a sudden changes the soldier's perspective a little bit. Maybe even gives them an opportunity to generally inquire about how life is in Rome. And incidentally, you know, it is the second mile that Jesus walked for us. And he knows that road very well because it took him to the cross where he bore the weight, not of a Roman backpack, but of our own sin in such an amazing way that I think it's, it's fairly clear how Jesus handled the cross. It's what convinced the Roman soldier that was there in charge of the execution to declare, truly, this, this man had to be the son of God. And then it says we're supposed to pray, to literally pray for our oppressor. Jesus, again, is this amazing example for us. When he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I would just encourage you, when you talk to God about the person who might be mistreating you or taking advantage of you, you're reminding yourself that God is present and available to assist you in your merciful response. And so if you notice down at the bottom of your notes, I actually included today what I would call overcoming evil with good prayer. And it can be hired. And so I just wanted to give you some thoughts to maybe guide you when you decide that this is where you want to go, where you need to go. And it's just open and honest. God, this hurts. And it probably does hurt. And maybe you're a little bit angry about it. But I know that my anger won't solve the problem or change the person. So God, I trust in you. I'm going to be kind instead of responding in kind. I'm going to keep doing good because that's, what you put me here for. And as I trust you and go about blessing others, I'm going to extend mercy in this situation and believe you will vindicate me as you see fit. Now, you've probably noticed we haven't had an opportunity to take communion yet today, and so I just want to share that the servers, if you're an usher today, uh, you can go ahead and uh, go back to get ready to serve communion in just a moment. And, and I, I, actually, God's timing is always amazing. Uh, but but I, I just think in Christmas season, the Christmas season actually commemorates the ultimate demonstration of how to overcome evil with good. See, God responded to the evil in this world by providing the good gift of his son. And folks, it's such a powerful event in and of itself that the simple observance of it has the power to actually stop evil in its tracks. And we see that. It was, it was Christmas Eve in, in 1914 during World War I. 
and the German and the British troops had aligned themselves on the Western Front. Uh, The ground troops had dug in, each of them facing each other in what became known as trench warfare. And the soldiers literally lived in the mud and the blood of, of the battle in those trenches they had dug. And many times they were literally only 40 to 60 yards from their enemies. And sometimes they were so close that they could actually hear the soldiers from the other side across what was called no man's land. But on that Christmas Eve in 1914, English soldiers all of a sudden looked across the field and they saw German soldiers begin to set up little Christmas trees. And they even decorated the trees, putting candles on them and then lighting the candles. And then as they listened, all of a sudden they heard the Germans begin to sing. And the British, of course, they didn't understand the words, but they could recognize the tune as they sang Silent Night. And then some of the British soldiers also began to sing with them in English. And then the Brits sang the first Noel, and some of the Germans began singing with them. And this went back and forth between the two until finally they all sang, Oh, come Let us adore him together. I mean, these trenches, remember, they were filled with men who had been trying to kill each other the day before. And now these same trenches are filled with men singing about Jesus together. The name of Jesus brought a world war to a halt. And at the first light of dawn on Christmas Day, they actually began to call out Christmas greetings to one another. And one of them finally made a sign that said, if you won't shoot, we won't shoot. And then cautiously, soldiers began to get out of the trenches and they walked across no man's land to meet soldiers from the other side. And spontaneously, they began to to exchange Christmas greetings and shaking hands. Some of them even exchanged gifts, chocolate and cigars and mittens and gloves, even food, gifts that would really keep them warm and well-fed on Christmas. The London Times even reported that one of the English soldiers produced a soccer ball, and they played a game right there in no man's land. And folks, nobody planned this. I mean, no politician, no prime minister, no general. Amazing peace broke out. You know why? Because it was Christmas. The day that we celebrate Jesus coming to this world so that we could be recipients of God's mercy and his grace. You see, only the power of Jesus' life, fully representing God's evil answer to evil, with mercy, could cause a ceasefire in the middle of war. Now, we all know that sadly, the next morning, December 26th, the war resumed, a war that eventually resulted in 15 million young men dying. An incredible loss of life and intelligence and gifts and skills. But for two days, in the middle of World War I, there was peace. Peace actually broke out that could only be attributed to the life of someone who actually lived 2,000, 2,000 years earlier. But for two days, the guns and the swords were put aside, and there was a glimpse of what could happen because of the impact of a baby who was born in the middle of a, a Middle Eastern stable 2,000 years earlier. Well, today you can actually go to Belgium and there's a cross that's placed there by veterans of the battle. And the inscription on that cross reads, lest we forget this moment. Lest we forget this moment. 